Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news this week of July 4th. Derek, let's start off with some uh, really great news about climate. And uh, let's start with El Nino. The climate news is always great. Um, but uh, yeah, this week is, is Natu- good. The, naturally. <laughs> the World Meteorological Organization, uh, which is the uh, agency that makes these things official, declared that there is, in fact, an El Nino. Uh, this has been widely known for some time now that we were entering an El Nino period. But it's going to be a lot of fun uh, in the months to come because we have El Nino. Uh, this is the first time, I think, in three or four years that, the, uh, that there's actually been an El Nino uh, that the, the, uh, onset of El Nino coupled with, uh, you know, an extra few years of, uh, carbon dumping in the atmosphere should make for some excellent temperatures around the world, uh, for the next, at least several months. It's unclear how long, uh, obviously the, the El Nino will last. Um, there was a, uh, report the, this week also, you know, coupled with the El Nino that ocean temperatures, which have been, uh, something people have been watching quite a bit of late and seem to be uh, spiking in ways that make even seasoned climate people uh, get nervous, uh, which is not good. Uh, ocean temperatures around Australia, this is the latest uh, information, uh, are about a half a degree Celsius above their uh, typical or were about we a half did a degree it, above their typical June average. It. So uh, congratulations to everybody who's made that possible. Uh, ocean temperatures and when ocean temperatures spike like this, it's, it's really troubling because the ocean is the big climate, the big carbon sink or the big energy sink, uh, for the planet. So when the ocean starts to give it up, uh, that that's, that's really, uh, not good. No, it's uh, absolutely terrible, in fact. Uh, and speaking of other terrible things, Derek, what's been going on in Israel-Palestine? So uh, the Israeli military launched an attack early Monday morning on what it was calling a joint operations center for militant groups in Jenin, in the refugee camp in the West Bank city of Jenin. Uh, the uh, targeted a facility that's used by a group called the Jenin Brigades. Now, there are a number of small localized insurgent uh, defense militant groups, whatever you want to call them, that have cropped up in recent years across the West Bank and, and localized, by localized I mean they are specific to a particular community. This has been happening as the Palestinian Authority has proven it is basically incapable of defending uh, these places, and, and so they've turned to local militias effectively uh, for self-defense. This operation lasted two days uh, it was uh, extraordinarily violent, even by typical Israeli standards. Lots of helicopters and armor and all sorts of things. Uh, at least 12 people were killed. 12 Palestinians, I should say. There was one Israeli soldier also killed uh, in this uh, in this clash. This was followed by rocket fire out of Gaza, which, of course, triggered an Israeli uh, response and airstrikes, uh, as it always does. Uh, on Thursday, there was a report that uh, a Palestinian gunman uh, near, uh, I believe, uh, a, a settlement called Kedumim in the West Bank had uh, 
killed an Israeli soldier. Uh, so uh, this is probably a, you know a, a, a response of some sort to the violence in Janine. Uh, so that's that's where things stand. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, head of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, announced that he was suspending security coordination with Israel as he does from time to time when there's a particularly uh, violent incident. He will res- quietly restore that at some point to, in the future, as he always does. Uh, in terms of an explanation as to why this happened, uh, I, sus- I-, I think y- y- you never have to look uh, very far to find a domestic political reason for the Israelis to start uh, an operation like this. And, and Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, uh, a few days prior to the, the beginning of this operation, announced that he had uh, really watered down the controversial judicial reform package that he'd been pushing that it has been generating protests and uh, getting a lot of heat. He was removing some of the, uh, the more controversial, I guess, aspects of this plan. Supposedly, uh, he's gotten rid of the provision that would allow the Israeli parliament to essentially override Supreme Court rulings with a, with a simple majority vote. Uh, he's taken steps to reduce the politicization uh, of judicial appointments. And all of these things basically outraged the far-right elements, the farthest-right elements of Netanyahu's coalition who really want uh, that power to to rest with their majority in the parliament. Uh, so they started sniping a Netanyahu, and there's nothing like bombarding a Palestinian refugee camp to bring everybody back together uh, and get everybody on the same page in the Israeli government. So I suspect that domestic politics played a role here. Uh, certainly, uh, the Israelis don't need a domestic excuse to uh, bombard the West Bank, but uh, I think that may have played a role here. Thanks, Derek, and we'll keep everyone updated to see how that goes. But again, just another very depressing uh, incident in the Israeli-Palestinian, basically, um, war. Let's talk about oil production cuts and how that's going to affect international politics. Yeah, this is uh, more of a geopolitical thing, but the Saudis uh, announced on Wednesday that they were extending their 1 million barrel per day cut in oil production, which was set to begin uh, or last through the month of July. They've already decided to extend that to through August, so a, a, an extra month. Uh, the Russian government also, in concert with this, announced a uh, decision to slash cut oil exports by 500,000 barrels per day in the month of August. Um, so uh, on the one hand, there's clearly still some concern here uh, on part of both governments about declining oil prices. And I should say, the oil market doesn't seem to have really reacted very strongly to this. Uh, there was a bit of a, a a bump up in price, but it's since come back down again. The m- most interesting thing, I think, is there have been rumors that the Saudis and the Russians were not on the same page anymore in terms of their approach to global oil production with the Saudis pushing for more cuts to raise prices and the Russians uh, not on board with that necessarily. Uh, so I think part of the the rationale here was not just uh, to uh, try to bring oil prices up again, but it was also to demonstrate that, that the Saudis and the Russians are still working together on this and that there's, there's no discord in that relationship. So I think there's a symbolism to it as much as uh, any hope of a practical effect on oil prices. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Let's move on now to Afghanistan with uh, more depressing news. 
Yeah. So uh, the uh, Afghan Taliban-led government uh, on uh, Thursday, I believe it was, announced that they are banning, shutting down women's beauty salons. Uh, I, I mentioned, I, I, I bring this up only because I think we're officially scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of what the Taliban can do to basically bar women from any life outside the home uh, at this point in Afghanistan. And this is relevant, I think, uh, both because of the uh, ideological issues or the, uh, you know, women's rights issues, but also on a more practical level because of what it's doing with this, this kind of really intense restriction of women's movements and women's rights is done for aid contributions uh, to Afghanistan, which is still wholly dependent on uh, food aid in particular, but just aid in general, uh, international assistance to keep any kind of economic life going or to provide any kind of uh, basic resources or basic needs to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, this, This steady erosion of women's rights and suppression of women has depressed uh, donations. It's caused a number of NGOs to simply cease operations in Afghanistan because they're not allowed to employ women anymore, which makes it very difficult to to get around Afghan society when you don't have women who can uh, kind of distribute aid, let's say, to female-headed households. It's, it's, and as I say, it's depressed a lot of uh, funding, uh, which is already depressed because most donors, most of the folks, the, the, the institutions and the, uh, the governments that donate to these kinds of causes are uh, riding the Ukraine train at this point. They are not terribly interested in donating elsewhere anyway, uh, but couple that with this kind of uh, hard-to-stomach restriction of women's rights, and, and you're really, I think, in a dangerous situation. The World Food Program uh, said earlier this week that it could only, it would only be able to continue its food assistance program in Afghanistan through the end of October uh, without an influx of funding. And it's it's really, I think, politically not a, a good climate to expect uh, any m- rapid influx of, of new money anytime soon. Uh, I think this just shows a general thing that you see in imperialistic countries throughout time where people come in, a lot of money flows in, and then the imperialism ends and the money flows out and, and, and nothing yes, is absolutely. remains there. And this isn't to, uh, in any stretch of the imagination to just justify the oppression of Afghani women, but just to point out that this is a repeated pattern that we see always. Um, all right, no, Doug, yeah, there's move. a whole array of things going on here, but uh, certainly... Yeah. and. Uh, you know, the fact that all the attention is on Ukraine, I would say there's a, certainly yeah. a racial component to that. So there's all kinds of <laughs> the distasteful of things imperialism. Yeah, you move yeah. from one thing to another and the, the NGOs get interested in this thing, then they get interested in that thing. Uh, let's move on to Sudan. Derek, could you give us an update on what's going on there? Briefly, there's really not much new to say uh, from what I can tell. The, the fighting is continuing, certainly uh, in Darfur. It's continuing in uh, North and South Kordofan states, uh, but it's mostly continuing still. The, the heaviest reports of fighting have been in Khartoum and its uh, sister cities in the capital area, Omdurman uh, and Bahri. The, the pattern continues to be that the rapid support forces, uh, which are more seasoned and seemingly you know, a little more effective on the ground, uh, are taking territory bit by bit. The, the military is responding with airstrikes and artillery, but that's been ineffective, I think, at dislodging uh, the RSF from the places it's it's captured. I, I, I didn't want to 
do this update without saying something about Sudan, especially because we're uh, we'll be off next week. So I wanted to to leave it with something, but don't I really worry, don't everyone. have Derek's pay is uh, being docked. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, it's uh, everybody's pay should be docked for this one, but uh, yes. But anyway, I, I you know, so I didn't want to leave it with with nothing here, but I really don't have anything uh, new uh, to say about this. Let's move on to Senegal. Uh, yeah, people may may be aware uh, that the president of Senegal, Macky Sall, has been flirting with the idea of running for a third term. Uh, he claims that uh, he, he ran through some constitutional changes uh, some time back that he claims sort of reset his uh, term limit count that would allow him, despite the legal prohibition on, on running for a third term, that would have allowed him to do this. Uh, this has led to protests, a lot of heavy opposition uh, to the possibility of him uh, running for third term and in some cases very violent protests. There have been casualties. Uh, Saul on Monday, uh, while still maintaining that he's allowed to run legally uh, for a third term, announced that he would not be doing that. So if people have been uh, kind of following this story, that is a, a significant development. It's been hailed uh, in many quarters uh, for his sort of, I guess, probity here in, in not uh, picking a fight with the opposition uh, and, um, you know, should hopefully uh, mean uh, less unrest for Senegal uh, as they approach next year's uh, presidential election, assuming, of course, that Saul stands by his decision. Uh, so, yeah, just a just a I actually kind of good news here, I think. Uh, maybe good news here, uh, but we'll we'll see. I, I, yeah, I know he's, he seems like a trustworthy guy. I think so. <laughs> uh, you know, no reason to to assume that uh, uh, he's lying here. So uh, hopefully, hopefully he'll stick to it. Let's talk about Colombia and the government and the ELN ceasing offensive operations. Yes. Uh, so ahead of their uh, ceasefire officially taking effect. Uh, the government and ELN have agreed uh, to stop offensive operations this week. Uh, their full ceasefire is, doesn't come into effect until August, uh, but they're going to try to start this week, and, and hopefully that'll stick. Uh, if it doesn't, then there's going to be problems when the, uh, the ceasefire deadline comes up, I would imagine. So uh, again, uh, trying to interject a little bit of positive news here, uh, this seems like a welcome development. There, there are still questions about what the ceasefire is going to actually mean in terms of um, violence in Colombia, because the ELN, as I, I think I said a week or two ago, uh, the ELN engages in a lot of violence that, that doesn't involve the government. So the ceasefire, it involves other armed groups that it's sort of competing with for turf. So uh, the fact that these two parties have agreed to, to stop fighting doesn't necessarily uh, mean that the violence is going to stop altogether. And it may, in fact... You know, it'll be interesting to see how the Colombian armed forces, how the Colombian military would respond in the case of ELN and one of its rivals kind of getting into a, an extended battle. Because what is the what are the armed forces going to be able to do uh, given this that the ceasefire is in place? So it'll be interesting to see. Um, hopefully that won't happen, obviously, but it will be uh, something to watch moving forward. Anyway, uh, again, a good sign. That uh, that things are going well with uh, Gustavo Petro's peace plan and the uh, the ceasefire there. From good news to terrible news, the degradation of a friend, a man, a comrade. The Jair. degradation of democracy. Bolsonaro. I mean, what's happened to democracy here? Uh, Brazil's superior electoral tribunal 
voted on Friday to bar former President Jair Bolsonaro from running for office. I didn't get out of office. bed for that entire day, uh, frankly. It, it is the, the whole weekend was ruined for me, frankly. Uh, this ban will last through 2030. It is... Oh, uh, my God. This is th- terrible it, it will prevent him then from running for president in 2026. And given his age and his uh, health infirmities that are pretty well documented... He might not be able um, to run again. May prevent... He, he may got COVID actually four foreclose. times since we began yeah, this Well, episode. at least that's the four <laughs> that we know of. Um, so may prevent him from, from running ever, may upend his political future altogether. Bolsonaro is going to appeal... Um, but obviously, he, you know, the, the tribunal ruled that his efforts to undermine last year's presidential election in advance, essentially by claiming that the electronic voting systems were rigged and that uh, the election was going to be stolen and, and to kind of rile people up, which contributed mightily to the January insurrection in Brasilia. Uh, the uh, yeah, the decision uh, then has it came down that, that he should be barred for that reason from from standing for for office for at least the next uh seven years or eight years i guess well sorry to bring it down everyone but uh <laughs> let's uh move on to nato which as we all know is greato so derek give us an update on what's going on with sweden and turkey it is greato but it could be greater oh if uh recep tayyip <laughs> erdogan were to uh, see the light here and allow sweden uh, to become a member, there has been a there's a bit of a press here to try and uh, get something to happen before the start of the Vilnius NATO summit, which is just days away. Uh, so I really don't think they're operating on a time frame that's realistic. But uh, Erdogan said earlier this week that that Turkey is not prepared to ratify Sweden's membership. They, they don't feel that the Swedish government has done enough to address Turkey's grievances, which which regard. Um, sort of claims, accusations that Sweden is harboring fugitives, essentially, from Turkish authorities, uh, people affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, people affiliated with the Gulen organization uh, who are wanted for extradition in Turkey or back to Turkey for to, to face charges. Um, but there is a press going on here. Uh, the, uh, the NATO officials, uh, Dan Stoltenberg, the, the Secretary General, uh, is bringing Erdogan and Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen together on, I believe, Monday to try and, like, in a last-ditch effort. I don't even, I mean, even if they agreed, I don't know how the Turkish parliament would uh, would get together and vote uh, on Sweden to ratify Sweden's membership uh, with, you know, given how, uh, how close we're cutting things. But I guess anything's possible. So they're going to try with a last-ditch thing, last-ditch appeal for Christensen to... Uh, to try and convince Erdogan that he's doing, uh, you know, everything that Erdogan asks. Now, the the Swedish uh, Swedish authorities have arrested apparently a Kurdish man who is accused of financing, uh, doing finance work for the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party. This is obviously a demonstration that uh, we hear you and we're responding to your concerns. They're also considering making it illegal to burn. Uh, Qurans, copy of the copies of the Quran, which is another of Turkey's grievances. Turkey's grievances. There was a, a protest uh, in Stockholm last week that that uh, involved. There have been a number of protests uh, in Stockholm of late that have involved desecrating the Quran in one form or another. Uh, so, and that's another grievance that the Turks have have brought up. So they're they're thinking about making this uh, 
potentially making it a crime to burn the Quran. Obviously, another direct uh, response to Turkish grievances. There's talk of Joe Biden carving out a little time during the NATO summit to meet with Erdogan. It probably wouldn't be like a big thing. It would probably be a little kind of sideline, uh, short meeting. I'm not sure Biden at this point could handle anything more than that. Uh, but that could be another. How dare you? Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I would. I, I should. I should watch my mouth. Dark Brandon Rising. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that might be another way to to give Erdogan something, and maybe they they'll talk about the F-16 deal that uh, it has become part of this. The U.S. is um, you know still dangling the idea that that the F-16, the frozen at this point deal to sell new model F-16s and upgrade kits for older F-16s to the Turks could be directly tied in a sort of quid pro quo way uh, to Turkey allowing Sweden to to enter NATO. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of flurry, big flurry of activity. The hope is still, I guess, uh, to be able to announce Sweden's membership at, at the Vilnius summit. Uh, I think that timeline is probably unrealistic, but we'll see. Good news for our friend Jens, though, Derek. What's been going on with old Well, I know this, this is a story that you've been following. You've been worried about, about what was going to happen here. And, and Jens is uh, going to get to stick around as Secretary General for another year, at least. Thank God. Uh, yes. Uh, this He's already had his four-year term extended by one year because of the war in Ukraine. And presumably, uh, that's the justification here as well. Uh, for extending him another year. The alliance alliance members have not seemingly been able to coalesce around a possible successor, so it was easier to just give him another year on the job. And who knows? He may have, uh, you know, more extensions to come. We'll have to wait and see. But I, again, I, I know... The Franklin that, Delano uh, Roosevelt of NATO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just going to be Secretary General for life, and, and uh, you know, we'll never have to worry about it again. Thank the Lord. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine. And <laughs> looks like uh, the U.S. is sending cluster bombs. Yeah. So I, 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 I want to preface this. There, there's a report, new report from uh, Humans right, Human Rights Watch that uh, has uh, basically pointed the finger at the Ukrainian military. They had already uh, criticized Russia for doing this, but po- pointed the finger at the Ukrainian military for using uh, anti-personnel mines in populated areas, civilian populated areas uh, that are controlled by Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, uh, possibly in southern Ukraine as well. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but Ukraine is is a uh, participant, is a party to the 1997 mine ban treaty. And this is, you know, direct violation of uh, its obligations under that treaty to use these things. Russia is not actually party to that treaty. So I guess on an international law, uh, since their their uh, the Ukrainian violation here is somewhat more heinous. Uh, anyway, my, the, the reason that I you know we bring this up is because the U.S. is on the verge, uh, according to a number of reports this week, uh, of supplying cluster bombs to Ukraine. These are uh, the same thing, basically. These there are scatter weapons that scatter these tiny anti personnel explosive devices. Call them cluster bombs, call them anti-personnel mines, whatever you want to call them. They, they serve the same purpose and they are extraordinarily dangerous for civilians when they're used uh, in populated areas. Um, they can be effective against infantry, but they are also uh, quite effective against civilians who come around and see these things on the ground and go, what is that? And, uh, often kids, uh, because kids are naturally curious, uh, what's that shiny thing on the ground? And you know, they have a, a fairly high 
dud rate for for you know as weapons go, which which by which I mean they don't you know explode right away. They just kind of sit there and uh, wait for somebody to come along uh, later on, and that's that makes them especially uh, dangerous for civilians. And uh, you know, but again, uh, the U.S. has been resisting so far supplying these weapons to the Ukrainians because of these concerns, because of concerns about uh, using them in populated areas. But apparently we've gotten over that because by, by all accounts, that is uh, about what to happen. What is happening? <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's talk about the nuclear power plant. Is it pronounced Zaporizhia? Zaporizhia, yeah. The, yeah. the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia Oblast, which is the largest nuclear power plant. It's not active anymore. It's not. It's been shut down, but uh, still contains... A, it was the, the largest power plant in Europe uh, and, and still, you know, obviously a, 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 a danger or risk uh, if something happens... Uh, war-wise in the vicinity, vicinity of this place. Uh, they have been, this has been on and off kind of in the news with the Ukrainians accusing the Russians of plotting some kind of nuclear disaster, the Russians accusing the Ukrainians of, uh, you know, doing a false flag thing and planning their own attack on the plant. Uh, anyway, they're, they're doing that again. Uh, the Ukrainians have been accusing the Russians of pulling personnel out of the plant and leaving it, you know, potentially just leaving it abandoned, uh, which is not great because you need people there to monitor the cooling systems and make sure that the uh, rods that have been put into cold storage don't uh, melt down uh, and, and cause a, a disaster. Uh, the They've also, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, this week suggested that the Russians had put bombs, explosive devices on the reactor structures, a couple of the reactor structures at the plant and that they could detonate those things and try to blame the Ukrainians for shelling the plant and create this uh, nuclear disaster. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, responded to that and said uh, it's seen no evidence of any uh, mines or explosives being planted at the facility. So, you know, whether... Zelensky was uh, telling the truth here or not, uh, uh, I'm sure he wouldn't would say whatever he's doing is justified by the, the, the circumstances of the invasion. But, uh, you know, was he fudging a little bit here? It's certainly possible. Anyway, it's it's again, you have to pay attention to any accusation uh, uh, on this particular area because the consequences could be so dire um, that it just can't be avoided but uh, there is no as far as i can tell objective confirmation or third party confirmation that anything uh, is going on here at the plant or uh, you know could be going on at the plant just something again to be uh, kind of white knuckling about thank you derek uh let's talk about russia and where prigozhin is or is yeah the- i don't really know what's going on here because it just broke uh, thursday before we were recorded but uh alexander lukashenko the president of belarus who uh, you know announced several days ago that yevgeny prigozhin friend of the show and head of the wagner group had officially begun his exile in belarus that he'd officially arrived and uh, he was there. Lukashenko announced on Thursday that Prigozhin isn't in Belarus anymore, that he's in uh, Russia or that he was still in Russia or had never, maybe never been uh, in Belarus. So I don't really know what's going on here. Lukashenko, uh, you know, as I said, he all did 
did announce to some fanfare several days ago that that uh, Prigozhin was in Belarus. Um, but now he's saying he's not in, he's still in Russia. His fighters are still in Russia. Maybe they won't uh, be moved to Belarus. And of course, there have been uh, indications of work going on in Belarus on a facility near Minsk that uh, would house these Wagner, thousands of Wagner fighters that are supposedly going with uh, Prigozhin to Belarus. So I really don't, Lukashenko said he was in St. Petersburg uh, and maybe even in, in, had gone to Moscow. I don't know what what he's talking about here, uh, but you know clearly something uh, weird is going on. Uh, so no, who knows? not with yeah. Art Prigozhin. Um, I mean, you know, Prigozhin uh, hasn't said anything. I, as far as I know, hasn't released any. You know, he's been uh, he's very big on Telegram. hasn't released any videos or anything to uh, explain his whereabouts. So so who knows? Who knows? Maybe he could still be wind up being uh, you know tossed in in a. Uh, prison in in Russia or worse, uh, who knows? Wild that we used to send telegrams and now we're all on Instagram. Um, let's okay. do a new Cold War update and uh, let's talk about friend of the pod Janet Yellen and her trip to China. Yeah, Yellen uh, um, just on Thursday arrived in China for a four day visit. Um, uh, there's nothing to report. Obviously, she just just got there. There's nothing to say about what's actually. Uh, happened and I wouldn't expect any. I mean, they're not going to do any like big trade deals or anything, uh, major, but I think the visit itself is again indicative, as was, uh, Anthony Blinken's visit, uh, previously that the two countries are sort of getting back on, uh, a, a steadier relationship where you have senior officials traveling back and forth. You have contacts somewhat regularly. So, uh, you know, after the, the great Chinese balloon of death, fiasco earlier this year which by the way uh was just reported a few days ago didn't even collect any intelligence while it was flying over the u.s uh at least according to the 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 pentagon um but anyway well, after that little special, dust up, Derek, so that's the thing that yeah it did give that's true it did give us a special so you know by all means let's you know do that again uh, anytime but you know so i think the the fact of the trip itself as as i i feel like i say every time something like this happens the fact of the contact is more important than uh anything that they might accomplish which is probably not much uh but it is good to have the two new cold war participants belligerents if you want to want to call them that back to to talking on a, a somewhat regular basis Let's conclude with the greatest story of the 21st century. The U.S. has finally returned to UNESCO. Yes, uh, thank goodness. Uh, the U.S. is back in the club. Uh, UNESCO member states voted overwhelmingly on Friday to readmit the U.S. Uh, we talked about this, I, I think, maybe last week, uh, that the U.S. Was, was rejoining UNESCO, also in a new Cold War context. Uh, the U.S. withdrew from UNESCO or stopped paying dues uh, in 2011 under the Obama administration. By law, it had to because UNESCO admitted the Palestinian Authority as a member state. Um, and there's a there's actual, you know, there are laws on the books that the U.S. cannot contribute to international institutions that admit the Palestine, essentially, as a member. Uh, so the Obama administration stopped paying dues. And then in 2017, also over Israel-Palestine grievances, the Trump administration withdrew from UNESCO altogether. But since that time, uh, go figure, 
China has become the, uh, I, I would say, if not dominant force, then the uh, preeminent force in UNESCO. Uh, and the uh, policymakers in Washington have been very unhappy to watch this uh, go on. So the Biden administration uh, informed the folks at UNESCO early in early June uh, that they were uh, intending to rejoin. They presented a plan to pay off these back dues uh, going back to 2011 uh, when the U.S. stopped contributing. Uh, so uh, Thanks, you know, Obama. They, they kind of lined this all up and, and the last big hurdle was for the member states of UNESCO to uh, hold a vote on readmitting the U.S., which they did. It was 132 to 10, uh, so not much doubt about that. But anyway, uh, yeah, everybody can be be grateful that the U.S. is back in UNESCO. You're welcome uh, to the world uh, as we uh, <laughs> put our might behind the educational and cultural and scientific programs uh, until the next Republican president pulls the U.S. <laughs> yeah, out Yeah, pulls again. out for some dumb uh, reason. Yeah, for some stupid-ass reason, which will undoubtedly happen. Uh, and then, you know, we'll, we'll yo-yo back, yo-yo in and out for time immemorial. Well, Derek, thank you so much. I hope everyone had a great July 4th, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.